Hello, and welcome to Clinical Nutrition Notes, a podcast where we will speak with guest experts and opinion leaders about the art and science of clinical nutrition. Brought to you by Nestle Health Science Canada. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals for education purposes. I'm your host, Bethany Hopkins, Medical Affairs Manager with Nestle Health Science. Today, we'll be talking with Peter Lamb about dysphagia and the older adult. Peter Lamb is a registered dietitian and credentialed food service executive in Vancouver, British Columbia. Over the past 25 years, he has focused his practice in dysphagia and mealtime management. Peter provides consultation to healthcare, food service, and the hospitality industry, and is currently co-chair of the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative, or ITSI. But when asked, Peter simply refers to himself as an eating enthusiast. Thank you for joining us, Peter. In your nutrition practice, you're involved in the management of many individuals with dysphagia, their families, and caregivers. Today, we'll be talking about dysphagia, a condition that may have an impact on quality of life, nutrition, hydration, and may have serious health implications for some. To begin, I'd like to start by having you to define the term dysphagia. Thanks, Bethany. Dysphagia, I think in the simplest terms, means difficulty swallowing. If we look back at the Greek roots of the word, dis meaning difficulty, phasia simply means eating or swallowing. I think we need to start by thinking about swallowing as a complex process that involves voluntary and involuntary components. When we put food or liquid into our mouth, this is a conscious thing that we're doing because we want to taste the food, we want to savor the food, uh, we want to note its flavor, and at the same time, we're chewing the food to the appropriate size, mixing it with saliva, preparing it so that it can be safe to swallow. Now, when this food is in a ready-to-swallow state, it is then propelled by our tongue into the pharynx, And the process then becomes involuntary, where a series of actions occur to actually allow that bolus of food to bypass our airway and safely, efficiently go into our esophagus and is then propelled with peristaltic contractions uh, of the esophagus towards our stomach. This process involves coordination of a number of muscles and nerves. It is often something we take for granted when we don't have any difficulty swallowing. However, when a part of this process goes wrong, it can result in dysphagia. And this may involve issues with retaining or retrieving food or liquid, the chewing component where we're breaking the food down into the appropriate size, the mixing of the food, having enough saliva even in our mouth uh, to make sure that the food actually becomes the optimal consistency where it's moist, cohesive, and slippery. Coordinating this food or drink in our mouth so that the materials don't spill into our airway before we're ready to swallow it. It can also be difficulty initiating the swallow. Sometimes it's inappropriate or mistimed closure of our airway It could even be insufficient strength to propel that bolus and then leaving some residue behind in our throat, which has a risk of being aspirated after the swallow. 
Occasionally, it's also structural issues, uh, whether it's in the mouth or throat, that actually prevent the proper passage of the food or drink, inappropriate, insufficient opening of the upper esophageal sphincter. It could even be the movement or the motility because of structural issues or because of muscle action in the esophagus, not allowing for the passage of food or drink into the stomach. And another example I can think of is actually poor coordination of the esophagus, uh, such as when, we've, uh, when we're experiencing gastroesophageal reflux, where we actually regurgitate food uh, from our stomach back into our throat, and then the materials enter into our airway. Now, these are only some of the examples, um, but to really identify these, we do need to do a thorough swallowing assessment and evaluation in order to figure out what are the challenges for the individual. You know, it's interesting to think that something that we do hundreds of times a day and normally take for granted is really complex, and there's a number of things that can go wrong along the way. So, Peter, thinking about all of that and what you just talked about, how does dysphagia usually present, and what should clinicians be looking for? Well, the first symptom often is individuals refusing to eat or drink. Dysphagia is often quite an embarrassing thing to encounter. Not um, anybody uh, would, you know, easily identify or um, proclaim themselves to have difficulty eating and drinking. Um, Sometimes the embarrassment is actually associated with coughing, throat clearing during a meal, when they're drinking something. Uh, it could also result in changes in voice or uh, gurgliness in the voice when eating and drinking. Um, sometimes it presents itself as just the person's eating very slowly because they don't want people to notice that they're actually having any trouble with eating and they're being extremely careful not to choke, not to cough, not to throat clear, and it results in prolonged meal times when uh, it may have taken them 10 to 15 minutes to eat in the past. It's now taking them 45 minutes to an hour to eat a meal. Um, it can present itself as somebody pocketing food where there's food actually stuck uh, in their cheeks, in their lips, um, Sometimes people are so embarrassed that uh, they actually just swallow the food without chewing and it actually presents a risk of choking. Uh, there could be an exaggerated swallow because it's, it's painful for them to swallow or they're needing to actually exert that extra force to swallow the more uh, difficult to swallow foods. It can actually present itself in excessive chewing or the person drooling or the most embarrassing one of all, uh, losing food or liquid out of their mouth mm -hmm. when they're eating or drinking. Peter, thinking of, of those symptoms and, and the way dysphagia presents, who are, who are the individuals um, that are most affected by dysphagia? Well, the most recent publication by the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative uh, when they were investigating the need for standardized international terminology and definitions for texture-modified foods and thickened liquids, um, suggested that conservative estimates show approximately 8% of the world's population is affected by dysphagia in some form. 
if we're looking specifically at the older adults, um, ones in nursing home, studies have shown anywhere from 55% to 68% prevalence. In the community setting, uh, data that comes out of Japan, Netherlands, and the United Kingdom suggests anywhere between 11 to 13% prevalence. And when we're looking at um, older adults in the acute care uh, hospital setting, it can range anywhere from 25 to 71% in different parts of the world. Um, now, there were a couple of interesting studies that showed us um, with regards to older adults with dysphagia presenting to acute care, there were certain characteristics. Um, most of them tend to be over the age of 80. They were typically nursing home residents, uh, suffer from some form of depression, suffer from functional capacity issues, um, having multiple diagnoses, and uh, often taking a large number of medications that could affect their level of consciousness, their swallow response, um, their uh, condition of their mouth, such as xerostomia, uh, and, and some even affecting their respiratory condition. So when we're talking about, you know, who it's most likely to affect, that's what the studies are telling us so far. Yeah, it, it's interesting. And really, it, it is a relatively prevalent condition. So Peter, what are some of the common challenges um, associated with dysphagia that you'd be thinking about as a, as a clinician? So I think the, the, the first thing to really consider is um, the, the, the safety and the efficiency of the person swallowing and what that affects. When we have challenges eating, often we're not eating enough. And we know that appetite, you know, is often affected when people get older. But when you compound that when the, with the issues that are presented with dysphagia, often you start to see uh, sudden or significant weight change or sudden or significant change to somebody's eating pattern that then can lead to malnutrition and dehydration issues. Um, when it's difficult to drink, you're not going to drink enough. And often what we see are things like chronic urinary tract infections, constipation issues requiring more and more laxative use, uh, malnutrition symptoms, muscle wasting, uh, you know, reduce functional capacity as a result of the muscle wasting. And then in the worst case scenario, we're seeing recurrent bouts of chest infection, pneumonia. Um, and in the worst case, when we have issues uh, where it's actually dangerous for people to be eating foods that are not texture modified, and there's the risk for airway obstruction of solid foods, um, it could even lead to death. Peter, uh, you know, the consequences, I mean, can be quite serious. When you talk about, um, you mentioned about difficulty with, with, with eating, malnutrition, dehydration. Are there specific um, types of foods or specific nutrients that have been observed to be a particular challenge um, in individual, individuals with dysphagia? So often what we tend to see um, are people avoiding those foods that are difficult to chew if the oral processing and chewing becomes an issue. And these tend to be the protein-containing foods. 
Um, and there are a lot of studies that have identified protein malnutrition being one of the key things that we do need to watch for with people that suffer from dysphagia. Um, and so in order to um, you know, help these individuals, we may actually need to think about elevating or um, providing them with much more protein and calorie-dense foods, um, particularly associated with the animal protein foods. Uh, we've seen that the uh, vitamin B12 iron uh, tends to be affected because of the lower intake of the animal protein items. Um, we know that vitamin D can often be uh, deficient for those who have issues with swallowing. Um, and then ultimately, as I mentioned, um, hydration. Because with drinking challenges um, and the uh, potential use of, of commercial thickeners, uh, sometimes we're not able to achieve those hydration goals uh, for the individuals that have swallowing concerns. And so they tend to be uh, at higher risk for dehydration. And Peter, what, uh, you know, we've been talking about um, sort of these challenges that we'd be thinking about from a clinician's perspective, nutrition and hydration and safety and efficiency. And you alluded to this a little early on about some of the personal challenges that individuals face and their family and caregivers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, we often forget, um, you know, as clinicians, we, we always think so much about sort of the, the technical issues of, of the dysphagia and the swallowing challenges um, that we forget about the mealtime experience for individuals. Um, chronically coughing, having choking incidents, having things spill out of your mouth at a mealtime or in a social setting, as I mentioned before, is rather embarrassing. And so often what we find with individuals that suffer from dysphagia is they tend to isolate themselves away from those social uh, dining environments or social activities which involve food or drink. And um, it really, really ultimately affects the dynamic of uh, family dining or social uh, interactions for them. It really does take away from the enjoyment and quality of life when you have uh, issues with, with swallowing. Um, because so much of our life actually does involve food, drink, uh, and interactions uh, to enjoy the food and drink. Mm. Yeah, f food is, it's such a social part of our lives, isn't it? A really important part, not just for sustenance and to get the protein and the nutrition we need, but a really important part of who we are and interactions with other people. Peter, I want to thank you for sharing your experience today related to dysphagia, which, as you mentioned, is a real concern for a number of older adults and their families. We'll continue this conversation in our next podcast, where we'll have you address assessment and management considerations for the clinician. So thank you, Peter, for joining us, and thank all of our listeners. This concludes our episode of the Clinical Nutrition Notes podcast. To listen to more podcasts or to subscribe to Clinical Nutrition Notes, visit our website at nestlehealthscience.ca.